Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Roots Show, heard every Friday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and sometimes we do Sundays or the middle of the week, based on what's going on in the in the world as far as the news and all. And we're going to do a, basically a sports show tonight, and I hope you're staying warm because the majority of the country, unless you're in California, Florida, somewhere, is very cold. But we're going to get to music right now before our guest comes on here, and I'm going to do right now, because earlier this week we lost a one of the giants of jazz, the trumpet player Clark Terry. And Clark Terry also, you know, he was the first African-American to appear in the, on the Tonight Show band, the regular house band they had. So I'm going to play a couple of songs of his, his this evening, and I'm going to start it off right now with uh, Clark Terry along with the great pianist Oscar Peterson, and we're going to play Mac the Knife on the Root and Root Show. Thank you. 
Clark Terry, who passed earlier this week, and along with our Oscar Peterson on piano and Clark Terry, the great trumpet player on the trumpet there, and that was Mac the Knife. And I hope you enjoyed that, because I'll be playing later on in the show some other Clark Terry songs and all, because, I mean, the guy was just legendary. We have someone on the line right now who wrote a book about a legendary figure who actually got knifed in the back a couple of times by some of his uh, teammates and some of his, man- you know, some of the general managers. And I'm talking about um, the book is titled Frank Robinson, the Baseball Biography, and it's by the author is on the line right now, John C. Skipper. Are you there, John? I sure am. All right. John's a polit- he was a political reporter. I'm right, doing well. He was a political reporter for the Mason City, Iowa Global Gazette, and he's written a number of books over the years, including baseball books about Grover Cleveland Alexander, Dazzy Vance, and Charlie Geringer. And, her, and his new one is the one about Frank Robinson, a baseball biography. And I have to say, for the listeners out there, and you can join in at 424 424- Six seven five eight three one five four two four six seven five eight three one five. That Frank Robinson, I'm guilty of this because this is the start of baseball season. I know it's spring training, but once pitchers and catchers come to Florida and Arizona, it's baseball season in me. And Frank Robinson is my favorite player of all time, baseball player. So I have a very strong bias here, and I was very happy when John wrote this book, and I saw it, and I said, i got to get this guy on here to talk about my favorite player, Frank Robinson. So, John, just thank you so much for writing this book. Oh, well, it was it was uh, fun doing it, fun doing the research and, and putting it all together. Now, what made you, now, I know it's in the book, but tell my listeners, why did you concentrate on, you know, after doing folks like Dazzy Vance and Grover Cleveland and Alexander and folks like that, you decided to do a book on Frank Robinson. Well, uh, one of the reasons was that uh, I was curious to to see what had been written about him, and uh, discovered that that really the only definitive biography of him was his autobiography, which I know you've read, and was published in 1988, and and. Uh, uh, so two things struck me. One is that there's a lot to Frank Robinson's life that happened uh, beyond 1988. And and also, I thought it would be interesting uh, for readers to get a different perspective other than than the person writing about themselves to have an outside observer uh, look at his life and, and tell the story. So those were two of the main things, Craig. You know, and it's a fascinating thing about Frank Robinson is that as I said, he's my favorite player of all time in baseball. But Frank is, uh, and you kind of say it at the beginning of the book, he's kind of an almost guy in the sense that he almost yeah. hit 600 home runs. He almost hit three. He almost had 3,000 hits. He almost hit 300. It's almost like he's he never gets to the pinnacle. You know, he's there with the superstars of that era, the Willie Mazes, Hank Aarons, Roberto Clemente. Ernie Banks and folks like that, but he's not in the public eye. He's not really remembered, unfortunately. Maybe mostly as a no. manager. Go uh, right ahead, let John. me interject. Two, let me interject a couple of things here too. He had uh, 2,943 hits, so he's 57 hits short of 3,000, which is, as you know, is kind of the pinnacle. Had 586 home runs, 
14 short of 600. Uh, had a lifetime batting average of, of 294. I figured out that if, if he had gotten two more hits a year in in his major league career, two more hits a year, he would have had a, a 300 lifetime batting average. So that, that's one aspect. Another aspect of that is that, it, as you know, Greg, when he was hired as the manager of the Cleveland Indians, uh, he was uh, a player manager for about a year and a half. And so he could have inserted himself in the lineup to pad his statistics anytime he wanted to and chose not to because he, he wanted to field the best team and there were a lot of days when, when he didn't consider himself part of the best team, that there were other players that, that could do it. So he wasn't as statistic conscious as a lot of people are are today. The other thing that uh, I want to mention... Uh, as, as another uh, player manager, Pete Rose was, because... Pete kept putting himself yeah. in the lineup, even though he was far beyond being the best player on no, the team right. as far as the first baseman, and he just put himself right. in there to get that hit record. You bet. The most the most interesting statistic to me, and the most telling statistic to me, about Frank Robinson is, you know, we make a big deal these days uh, about uh, hitting with runners in scoring position. His lifetime batting average, 22 years in the major leagues, his lifetime batting average with runners in scoring position is 291. I mean, I just think that's phenomenal. You know, that's that, amazing. That any, anytime some, uh, there were uh, runners on second and third or a man on second or something like that, uh, you had a pretty good chance of driving them in with, with uh, Frank Robinson at bat. You know, over 22 years. Amazing. Amazing. You know, it's amazing. and it's amazing that he was probably the most of the players of the late 20th century, and probably a player I've seen, you know, that I would say the players I've seen since I was looking at baseball since the late 50s, probably the most intense and all-out player who wanted to win at all costs. And not cheating, but yeah. he did anything, and yeah. he was underrated as a fielder, underrated as a runner. I mean, he everything he did, when you think about Frank Robinson, was baseball perfect. It wasn't flashy, but it was perfect. I, uh, if I had had the, the, uh, the, the choice to uh, title the book, and I kind of leave that up to the, to the uh, publishers. You know, it's their job to sell the book. It's my job to write it, but their job to sell it. But in, in terms of looking at his overall life, his baseball life, and even some of his life out, out, off the diamond, I would have titled the book Crowding the Plate because Frank Robinson crowded the plate in, in everything he did. He was, and that goes to, to to the point you were making about his intensity. You know, uh, getting getting hit by pitches 198 times uh, because he crowded the plate. And and uh, you know, think about that. Getting hit 198 times in his in his rookie year in 1956, he got hit 20 times, and 12 times in his career he was hit by a pitch more than more than 10 times in a year. Uh, when he got over in the American League with uh, uh, Baltimore, uh, John Flaherty, we call him Red Flaherty, he was an American League umpire for years and years said that Frank Robinson never loafed on the ball field. He never saw Frank Robinson loaf, and he said an umpire can tell. An umpire watches. umpire can tell. He never saw Frank Robinson loaf. I think that uh, kind of testifies to what both you and I are talking about, Greg, about the, 
about the intensity, it wasn't it wasn't just hitting home runs. It was breaking up double plays. It was diving into the seats to catch to uh, ca- catch a ball. Uh, it was um, doing everything he could to to try to win. I think he might have fallen victim to what a lot of great ball players fall victim to when they're managers, and that's uh, sometimes expecting too much of your ball players because you were such a good ball player uh, that that you you uh, uh, tend to try to get the most right. out of others. And Robinson was more successful than others. Remember, Ted Williams was not terribly successful as a manager. Uh, and I think well, except his first year with the Senators, because I was, you know, that's where I'm from yep. D.C. and yep. I was no, out right. there when. Yeah, right. his first year, but after that, he kind of lost the team. You know, and I was thinking, John, yeah. too, that the the manager, the player manager that Frank Robinson reminds me of, and it has nothing to do with uh, his hitting or anything, but just his managing style and how he kind of, this guy also, like, lost this clubhouse very quickly, and a lot of people didn't like him. And I don't know if yeah. you agree with this, but Rogers Hornsby, my readings of Rogers Hornsby, yeah. All time, you know, totally opposite, you know, yeah. ball players and, and totally opposite as men because, yeah. you know, Hornsby at one time was considered, you know, he was, they said he was a racist. And Frank Robinson and him probably mm-hmm. would definitely not get along. But as far as being someone who was a, you know, one of the best players ever of his era yeah. and a superstar. Oh, sure. and intensity. Yeah, but he couldn't no, get along, he I, I, couldn't I, get I along with his players. You know, it's no, just, it's I, just I amazing. Yeah, yeah, and, and he was he was downright insulting to to uh, to his his um, players. But I, I agree with you. Although I would I would say in terms of intensity, Roger Hornsby was probably Frank Robinson on steroids. He was so yeah, you know, oh yeah, so That's what they said. so intense. Uh, but yeah, Frank Frank yeah, would but, also you know, and Frank also could insult his players too, and. And he, you know, as you say in the book later on in the book, that he does apologize for a lot that he did. Yep. But, you know, he he yep. just had a way, you know, that he was really, he wanted to win and he couldn't understand why the other players were yep. could be lax and all. And it's just, you know, well, it's just, it was, was just something. Go ahead. Yeah, when he was, when he, I was just going to say, when he was managing Washington, which was very late as, you know, his, in his 50-year career, that was that was the last stop. So he was an older fellow by then, and and uh, he had a he had a game where he had a he had a uh, catcher uh, in the game who was just having a a, a horrible game, and the other team was stealing on him, and there were pass balls and and uh, all sorts of uh, stuff. And Robinson replaced him in the middle of an inning, which is really against baseball etiquette. You know, you don't embarrass a guy like that. And, and uh, uh, you know, usually if a guy's having a bad game, at the start of the next inning, he, he, they put in a defensive replacement or, you know, something like that, Greg. But in this case, he took him out in, in mid-inning. And, and after the game, he actually wept because he felt like he'd embarrassed this guy. And, and the the catcher involved said that he would have done the same thing had he been than Robinson. So we talk about the intensity of the man, but there also there was some sensitivity there as well. Oh, yeah, you know, and, and the catcher was Matt LaCroix, and he, um, and I remember that press conference after the game and how Robinson, he was he was crying. It was just amazing to see him doing that. 
But, you know, yeah. LaCroix just could not throw out any. He, he wasn't actually a catcher. He was thrown in there. He no, was, you know. He, right. You're right. So He was a first so baseman must, outfielder, and he just they just threw him in there yeah. to catch, you know. Yeah. And it was you know and it was mm-hmm. it was sad for him and that's why he had to be pulled out mm-hmm. of the game. But let's let's talk a little bit about Robinson's like background, where he came okay. from, and you know how he got, you know where that intensity came from. Let's talk a little bit about that to my listeners. Sure. He he was born in Beaumont, Texas, uh, his, but his family moved to Oakland uh, when he when he was just a youngster. Uh, he was basically brought up with a uh, single mother, uh, and he had nine nine brothers and sisters. And and uh, he talked about he he kidded about his boyhood and said that the, one of the reasons why he he developed such quick hands was he had to at the dinner table if there were nine other people nine other kids uh, <laughs> trying to get get the get the food at the same time. He uh, uh, went to. Uh, of course, he went through through Oakland schools, and when he was in high school, he was d- discovered as being well not only a, a good uh, baseball player but also a basketball player uh, as well. And uh, he he uh, came across a, a man uh, named George Poles, it's P-O-W-L-E-S, but it's pronounced Poles, who was his high school baseball coach, basketball coach, and also his American Legion. Uh, baseball coach who kind of took Frank under his wing. He was almost like the father that Frank didn't have at home. And one of the things that he taught him in baseball that that served him for for the next 30 years was he taught him how how, how to crowd the plate and then and then duck away from from pitches by by ducking your head and spinning around. And he taught him that. And Robinson used that uh, uh, throughout his career to. Uh, uh, perhaps not get hit as often <laughs> as he wound up getting hit. But at any rate, uh, so Poles coached him on the high school team and also on the American Legion team. And uh, there was a uh, major league scout named Bobby Maddox uh, who came down, and he, he was a scout for the Cincinnati Reds. And he came down to, to scout a uh, catcher first baseman named J.W. Porter who was just tearing up uh, every league he played in 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 Oakland, and right. Maddox wanted to uh, come down and sign him. And but while he was down there, he noticed this kid named Frank Robinson, and uh, he wound up signing Porter. But he also wound up uh, signing Frank Robinson uh, to a contract with with the Reds. And uh, it turned out to be a goldmine down there for Bobby Maddox because uh, he he signed an awful lot of other players. Uh, from the Oakland area for Cincinnati, the the one that immediately comes to mind is Veda Pinson, who was a uh, uh, friend of Robinson. It it was kind of odd. You know, the possibilities of having an area like that, we had Veda Pinson, Frank Robinson, Kurt Flood, um, and even in a sense, even though he ended up playing basketball, uh, uh, Bill Russell. I mean, there's all this talent in that particular area. Yeah, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. I don't know. What, I don't know, Greg, whether there's a, a a really good reason that you could single out out for that, except that I I, I think now. See, Robinson always said that that he never knew he was poor because the, he always had what he wanted and that sort of thing. Right. But I think it's fair to say it, it was 
probably an undeveloped area where where sports was uh, recreation and cheap recreation that every, everybody could do. And then if you had mentors like George Poles uh, were, who would, you know, pay attention to you and help you and, and develop you, that might be part of it. I don't know, but it was it was just a uh, a gold mine for for athletes, particularly back in, in right. those days. And I was hoping, you know, I, I, I made contact. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 And, yeah. And, and, also, I wanted uh, to tell you too, John, and my listeners that uh, I had made contact about uh, two hours ago with a uh, Beta Pinson, uh, the third, the son of Beta Pinson, and I'm hoping that he will come on because he's been on this show before, and he remembers Frank very well and. Him and his father, they, I mean, they, they loved each other. They were, they were really great friends. Yeah. And that friendship, as you say in the book, kind of, some people didn't understand the friendship as far as, and this goes back to the, the racial views of folks in the late 50s and 60s. And if I want mm-hmm. you to talk about the reaction of some people in particular, because I mentioned Pete Rose earlier, talk about, when Pete Rose first comes to the Reds, and what happens? <laughs> it's a fascinating story. Let me let me just say to to preface that, uh, Greg, when when uh, Robinson and Pinson were were together uh, on the on on the Reds, they they experienced, uh, uh, if not outright racism, uh, just uh, coolness. Uh, uh, on the part of the of uh, many of the white players on the on the Reds, uh, where they uh, Pinson uh, Robinson was glad that Pinson arrived because he had somebody to eat with and talk with and go to the show with and and that sort of thing. Because this was back in the 1950s, you know, Cincinnati wasn't the only team or the only town that that uh, had something like this going. Uh, so anyway, when when Rose. Uh, uh, comes up in in uh, sixty two. Uh, he's a he's just a cocky young kid, and even in in spring training, if he if he got a walk, he'd race down to first base, and uh, a lot of the other players on the on the Reds uh, kind of thought he was a hot dog. You know, in in fact, the term Charlie Hustle, which followed Rose much of the rest of his career. When he first got that nickname, it wasn't a compliment. It was uh, the uh, fellows mocking him. And because fact, of his youth and his standoffishness and yeah, that sort of fact, thing, person, he didn't have any yeah, the person that gave him the name. He, he uh, was right. kind of a loner. And Robinson and Pinson noticed this because they had experienced the same thing earlier. So they befriended Rose. And and uh, Oh, we'd go to invite him to dinner and, the, and that sort of thing. Well, what happened was that that actually further alienated him uh, from the, the other players on the team because now he was associating with the black guys and not them. So it was a really difficult situation. And the the way that the Reds tried to re- remedy this is a real classic. Uh, they what they decided was that they had to they had to figure out uh, something to do with Rose so they could break up this this relationship which they thought was harmful to the team. The year before they had released 
uh, Johnny Temple, who had been a second baseman. He was a white man, and he was a second baseman for them for many years in the in the 1950s. They'd released him, and he had signed with Houston. And they, uh, the the Reds, made arrangements to get him back. And he was over the hill as a ball player, and everybody knew that. But what they wanted was they wanted a white friend for Pete Rose. So they, in essence, bought one. They bought uh, uh, the rights to Johnny Temple, and he came over to uh, Cincinnati with the uh, specific assignment of befriending Pete Rose and going out with him and and uh, doing uh, things uh, fairly socially with him to get him away from the black ball players. And if you look at the statistics for Johnny Temple, in 1962, I believe it is, uh, 62 or 63, you'll see that, that he played for the Reds, but he only got into 50 or 60 games because he wasn't there to play ball. He was there to to uh, be Pete Rose's white friend. And it worked for a while, but Rose, is not, but Rose was a kid. Temple was, was uh, probably twice his age and, frankly, couldn't keep up with him. But that's to me. That's just a classic story of how management looks at a problem and decides to solve it. They bought a white yeah, friend for right. for Pete Rose. It certainly is, and what I was about to say too is that as far as the name Charlie Hustle, as I remember, it actually came from Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. That they saw yeah, Pete well, Rose in spring yeah. training, and they just said, yeah. you know, Mantle was at Ford. I think it was in. Yeah. I think it was in spring training and. Ford, you know, Mano looks at Ford and says, you know, look at Charlie Hustle when he sees Pete running, yeah. you know, running yeah. to first base on a. That that could be. That's one of those stories where there's 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 probably ten different stories on the origins of that. Anyhow. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Now let's get. And, and I have to say, I have to say this too, as far as um, I fell in love with Frank Robinson as a ball player once he got to Baltimore because what he did. Because I grew up watching the Washington Senators and the Orioles in the D.C. area, mainly the Washington yeah. Senators, which was a terrible team at the time in the 60s. And, but the thing was is that Frank Robinson brought this, the National League style to the American League, and I want you to talk about that because it I just had never seen a player in the American League play like him. And just talk about that, the style that he brought. Well, there are a lot of interesting aspects to him coming over to to uh, uh, Baltimore, but uh, one of the things was in, in the the National League. Uh, he was uh, his skills and everything. He was overshadowed by people like uh, uh, Willie Mays, and Duke Snyder, and uh, uh, people like that, Henry Aaron, uh, and. When he came over in the in the American League with this this uh, brashness that 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 he had, because Baltimore had a good team, they already had a good team, but Robinson was a winner, and and uh, he he in, instilled that kind kind of attitude in them. Uh, there's a, I make mention in the book of something that I, th- I think was uh, kind of interesting and revealing. Uh, the uh, lots of times, if if uh, oh, it's a, when a, when a team is batting, if a guy gets up and and makes an out or strikes out or something like that, uh, he'll uh, walk back to the dugout and he'll be uh, shaking his fist and saying, "Let's go, let's go," and kind of encouraging uh, the, the, the next guy. 
Robinson had that that attitude for himself and going, going going up to the plate. You know that he that he wanted to produce, and the other players noticed that. And and several players who who played with him say that he was the one that developed the winning the, the winning spirit and the winning attitude uh, with the with the Orioles. And Greg, I want to I want to di- divert for just a moment and talk about that trade of basically Robinson for uh, Milt Pappas. Because uh, Milt Pappas, uh, uh, well, the, the, the trade is often thought as, as one of the worst in history because Robinson came over and won the Triple Crown and they won uh, four pennants with him while, while he was there. And Milt Pappas uh, came over and played for Cincinnati for a couple of years and then Atlanta and then the Cubs. And, and, uh, but he finished. Milt Pappas finished with 206 wins in his career, which is the exact same number that Don Drysdale, who's in the Hall of Fame, finished with. And Drysdale pitched for the Dodgers all his all his, his years. So, uh, you know, a, a very good team. And my point is that if the in the trade for Robinson, Cincinnati wanted a starting pitcher. That was that was a key to the deal. And so they just went in and. and Took the pick of the litter and took took Pappas, but they could have traded uh, Jim Palmer at that point, or they could have traded uh, uh, Wally Bunker. Uh, there were uh, a number of pitchers that could have been traded. If Pappas had stayed with the, if they traded somebody else and Pappas had stayed with the Orioles, he would probably be in the Hall of Fame because he got he had 206 wins pitching for teams like Atlanta when Atlanta was awful and. Cincinnati wasn't very good, and the Cubs are never very, very good. And yet, and yet, he he, he did uh, fairly well for himself. If he'd stayed with the Orioles, he'd be in the Hall of Fame. I just think that's that's one of the interesting things about baseball. How you never know, you never know. You certainly don't. Now let's talk a little bit about. Uh, we're getting ready to conclude this segment about Frank. You know, Frank. We mentioned it earlier, but Frank as a manager. First with Cleveland and the and the difficulties he had with a Hall of Famer there and also difficulties with a famous slugger too in Cleveland. Talk about that and his uh, why he wanted to be a manager because he worked a long time to do that. So talk a lot about that. Well, he uh, Frank was always the kind of guy, even as a as a young player who when he even when he was in the dugout he. He observed things, and he would talk with his managers. He had a great relationship with uh, Bertie Tebbets, his, his first manager at Cincinnati, and he always he always kind of had the aptitude uh, for for managing. Even sitting on the bench and looking out and deciding uh, which player should be positioned in which way, and and uh, which uh, what kind of pitch uh, should be coming into the plate, and all sorts of things that managers think about. And there's a story in the book about um, Bertie Tebbets pulling Robinson out of a game one time, and, and uh, Robinson went, went in the corner of the dugout and was kind of sulking about it, and Tebbets went over to him and uh, said, what, what, what's this all about? And he said, are you, you know, are you upset that I took you out of the game? And, and uh, Robinson said, no, I'm upset that I wasn't playing well enough to stay in the game. And Tebbets said, well, good, because I just wanted you to remember who the manager was. In other words, it was Tebbets. Tubbets could take anybody right. out of the game he wanted to, and I think Robinson had that attitude as a manager too. That that uh, he was, you know, he was the boss, and 
it worked with some of some of his players. It hardly ever worked with some of his general managers or some of the stars that he had on his team. That uh, he had problems. Yeah, let's with the, yeah talk about a little Perry. bit about him with the, with him and Gaylord Perry. Yeah, get into that and also Rico Cardi because that's okay. that's fascinating, very well, disappointing too. Yeah, couple couple of things with uh, uh, Gaylord Perry was was a a, a star. Uh, pitch, the best pitchers that Cleveland had, but one of the best pitchers in baseball and, and a future Hall of Famer. When Robinson came to Cleveland, though, uh, he had his own rules, uh, and he wanted everybody to, to follow the same rules, no special treatment for for anybody. And uh, there were a couple things, and, and uh, one of them was that, that uh, he wanted all, all, his, all his pitchers to do the same workouts, uh, running drills and that sort of thing. Um, prior to games, and uh, Gaylord Perry uh, had trouble doing that, had trouble following the, the same rules. He wanted to do it his own way. Another thing that Robinson wanted was that uh, if if you were taken out of a game and the manager comes out to take you out of the game, you stand on the mound and you hand, and you hand him the ball. And just basically basic uh, baseball etiquette, uh, but he wanted it to apply it. To everybody, and and uh, uh, he got into a war of words with with uh, Perry uh, over that, and uh, wound up trading trading Perry. Also had trouble with Perry's brother uh, Jim, and wound up and he wound up getting traded too. And it's kind of a uh, I think of the old saying how sometimes the boss the boss may not always be right, but he's always the boss. And and uh, but the Rico the Rico Cardi thing is is really uh, kind of a tragic thing because because uh, Rico Cardi was a was a really good hitter in his day couldn't do much else but he could really hit and he was the best hitter on the Cleveland team when Robinson came aboard and he was the designated hitter and there's some thought that Cardi thought that when Robinson came that he might challenge him uh, being the designated hitter because that's probably what Robinson would, at that stage in his career, uh, probably would have been most suited for. But at any rate, for some reason or other, he didn't get along with uh, Hardy. After the first season uh, and prior to the next season starting, uh, the a group of Indians, including Robinson, the manager, and Cardi, the best hitter, and a few other ball players, were invited to a, a group called the Yahoo Club, which was a uh, or the Wahoo Club, which was a, a bunch of uh, uh, Cleveland Indian supporters and season ticket holders and that sort of thing. And everybody was supposed to get up and give remarks. And you know, prior to the season. Uh, that's the time to to show optimism and and frankly try to sell some tickets, right? You know, to to get everybody enthused about about the team. And Cardi got up got up to speak with Robinson sitting right next to him, and uh, talked about how the Indians would have done better and would do better if the manager would would show more leadership and get more out of the players. And it was a thoroughly humiliating uh, incident that that uh, should have never happened. Uh, and later when Phil Segui, who was the general manager of the Indians, who was there and witnessed it, <laughs> excuse me, when he was asked about it, he said uh, something to the effect that, well, you know, everybody's entitled to their own, own opinion, which was not a glowing vote of confidence, 
uh, for Robinson. And then later that year, one of the uh, Cleveland announcers uh, got on uh, Robinson pretty good on, on the air and, and uh, uh, criticized him. And it's uh, it is said that that uh, oh about ten years after this, <clears throat> there was a, uh, a reunion of some of the old timers in Cleveland, and Robinson wasn't there, but this baseball announcer and Rico Cardi were. And Rico Cardi went up to the baseball announcer and said, "Well, we got rid of that sob Robinson, didn't we?" And they both laughed. And this was like ten or twelve years later. So, uh, those, and, and that's those really a shame, there, John. It, it really is a shame that, that you know. That happened, but what you know, we got to conclude this segment now. And um, what do you think Frank Robinson's legacy is? Because we don't want to give away all the stories in the book. We want folks out there to buy the book. But what do you think his legacy yeah. is to baseball? Well, I, th- I think his, his legacy to, to to baseball is, and particularly if you watch some of the players today, that like like the, um, the the umpire John Flaherty said that he never saw Robinson loaf, and. And uh, you couple that with the the concept that I have of here's a guy who who crowded crowded the plate all of all of his life, and I'm thinking, Greg, you've you've read the book, you can see in so many different areas where he did what he he did what he thought was right, he did what he thought was best, uh, didn't really pay much attention to the consequences, or wasn't scared of the consequences if he thought he, what right. he was doing was right. And so he wound up uh, having problems with some of his star players. He had trouble with every general manager <laughs> that he had, and and uh, he, he he wasn't always wrong. Let me, uh, if we're getting to the conclusion of this, I want to read a quote from Tom Boswell. Tom Boswell, who I'm sure you read often in the Washington Post. Oh yeah, Post. and I, I really, I, I'm sorry, we won't be able to get the quote in because I'm gonna have someone come on shortly here. Frank was an amazing <clears throat> ball player, amazing, amazing man, amazing man too. And John, I just want to thank you for writing this book. And also, I want to get you back on here because the publishing company McFarland just sent me another book that you wrote, and we've been doing a series on this show on the civil rights movement, and doing that for a number of years. But you wrote a book called. Showdown at the 1964 Democratic Convention, Lyndon Johnson, Mississippi, and Civil Rights. And I really want to get you on again to talk about this book, because this lays out everything. Schedule schedule me in for about two hours on that one, Greg. (laughs) Yeah, we're really going to get into this one, because this is amazing. So I'm going to get you on here sometime in the middle, probably middle of March, because we really want to talk about this, especially with the movie Selma out right now and all this oh, going yeah. on. You bet. This you be bet. I would, I, would, I would love to do that. I would love to do that. We will, we will do that, John. I will call you later on and we'll schedule for next month. Great. Hey, I appreciate you having me on today, Greg. Good luck to you. And thank you, John. Thank you for being on here. Thank you for writing a great book about Frank Robinson. You take care, John. Thank you. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right. And, again, that was John C. Skipper, and the book is Frank Robinson, who is my favorite player, a baseball biography. And we're going to get John on again, and that's going to be a longer conversation because he wrote a book and a half about the Democratic Convention in 1964. But we're going to be switching gears shortly because we're going to have another guest coming on. We're going to be talking about the NBA. But right now we're going to play a little more music here, and we're going to do – I think we'll play 
Clark Terry again, and we're going to do, you know, he used to do, in fact, we're going to do this one. We're going to do Clark Terry doing the Flintstones, the Flintstones theme. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show.
corn horse And let me introduce myself to this Cause I want you to know one thing I just come in town And I've bought the baddest cat around I don't, I'm telling you I don't bar nobody I don't bar nothing There's one thing I don't One thing I don't you that goes for you and you and everybody else. That's right. Hey, you! Come over here. Sit down there. You When I'm talking to you, woman, we'll sound about a bad mumbling mother. And I don't take no, no, nobody in this house. That's right. Yeah. Uh, hey, you over there with the wig on. Come over here. Yes, you. Don't tell me anything. I knew it. Shut up. I'll bet I'll slap the taste out of your mouth. I told you. Because I'm about a bad moment, mother.
Clark Terry on trumpet, and we're doing a little tribute to Clark Terry because he passed earlier this week, and that was Swinging the Blues. Hope you enjoyed that on the Root and Root Show, and I'm waiting for my next guest. I'm going to do another cut here as we wait for my next guest. I think we'll do a little bit of, let's see, I'm just I'm just going through the, all oh, the, oh, I'll do this one. We'll do the Swallows. We'll do the Swallows. It ain't the meat, it's the motion. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. It ain't the meat, it's the motion. Makes your daddy wanna rock. It ain't the meat, it's the motion. It's the movement that gives it the sock. Now I had a girl so dude no bones, she was just all skin. One thing about her I can understand. She wraps all around me like a rubber band. It ain't the meat, it's the motion. Makes your daddy wanna rock. It ain't the meat, it's the motion. It's the movement that gives the sock.
And that was Eddie James. You know, I haven't played any New Orleans, Mardi Gras, any music like that on here until just now. And that was Eddie James, Born on the Bayou, on the Root and Root Show. And I'm still waiting for our guest. We're going to talk about the NBA. But if he's not on, I can I can do it myself. But we're going to get to more music here in a minute. But first of all, I want to say, for you that are just tuning in, this is Greg Rashid. I'm the host of the Root and Root Show, heard every Friday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and Saturdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and also on a delayed basis on KUHS Denver Radio and TV in Colorado. I want to say hi to my friend, the owner, founder of that station, Henry Archuleta, and I want to say hi to all my friends out there in Denver. And I'm about to play something that was Made in Colorado, this performance was, uh, they recorded this, in the, I think it was at the Boulder Theater, but I'm talking about the Neville Brothers. We're going to do a little more New Orleans music here, and I'm going to play, yeah, you get up here. You folks out there in Denver in particular, I want you all to get up and dance to this. This is uh, the Neville Brothers and Shake Your Tambourine. And so let's hear that, and it's from the Boulder Theater in Colorado. So let's hear this on the Root and Root Show. Step in 
All right, it's Neville Brothers, and that was Shake Your... Did you get up and shake your tambourine? But it was Shake Your Tambourine. That was from live at the Boulder Theater, and I believe that was 2008. So all you folks out in Colorado and everywhere around the world, but especially in Colorado, I hope you really enjoyed that one. And I guess my guests uh, will not be coming in this evening, so we're going to just proceed. And I'm going to give a real quick update. Well, what we're going to talk about was the state of the NBA right now as far as what's going on in the second half of the season. And I'm just um, – maybe you folks out there can help me in Colorado because I'm going to talk about what was my favorite basketball team, NBA basketball team, the Nuggets. I don't know what they're doing. If you can tell me what they're doing, let me know because I have no clue what the focus of that team is, where they're going, what they're trying to do with it. It's a shame because they had – Three years ago, they looked like the Atlanta Hawks or, you know, or the Portland Trailblazers as far as the team or the Toronto um, Rapids as far as uh, Raptors, I mean, as far as how they played as a team. They weren't worried about stars or anything. And it's a shame that that team has gone from that, a playoff team that was exciting to look at, to this team that I don't know what it is. It's very disappointing. So maybe some folks out there in Denver can help me with that one. At some point, because I have no clue what's going on. As far as the team I'm following here on the East Coast, the Washington Wizards, that's a team that is still going to make the playoffs. But unfortunately, they have gotten to a slump because their shooting guard, Bradley Beal, has been hurt. And I think the team, the team really is starting to kind of bicker and not really – do what they were doing last year was basically working as a team. Everyone's like finger pointing. That's a bad sign, and I got a feeling that their coach, Randy Whitman, will not be the coach this time next year in two thousand. You know, to start the next season, I think he'll be gone as well as the coach of the Denver Nuggets. I think that Brian Shaw is also going to be gone too. So we will see. But right now, it looks like the best team in the league. And I know they don't have the best record, but they have one of the best records. I think it's, I think the Cavaliers, they're coming on. LeBron is the best player in the league. Is just bringing their team together now. They're figuring out everything. And I think that the even though what Golden State is doing as far as they got one of the best records, the Atlanta Hawks have the best record in the league. I think when all is said and done, that the Cleveland Cavaliers are going to win this year's NBA championship. But we shall see. We shall see with that. But we're going to get to more music here on the Root and Root Show. If you got a comment, you can call here at 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315. But in the meantime, we're going to get you up and dancing again because I'm going to play some go-go music, some local go-go music here because I know particularly a lot of folks around the world don't know a lot about Go-Go stuff for Chuck Brown and maybe EU, who I will be playing, Experience Unlimited, I will be playing in this segment. But for the next half hour or so, we're going to play a little Go-Go music, get you up and dancing. And I'm going to start you off with uh, a group probably a lot of you don't know unless you're local here, Junkyard Band. We're going to play Loose Booty. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Loose Booty!
tonight. It's on fire tonight.
So really, you know, really, you will really enjoy that show. And Katrina, she has a lot to, she's a fascinating professor is a wonderful person. I'm just happy to have her back on again. So that'll be on tomorrow on the Root and Root Show. So this is Greg Rashid. I'm going to leave you. Let's see what we'll play to get out of here. I think we will do another. I think we, we started with Clark Terry. Let's end with Clark Terry. We're going to do Donna Lee. So go in love and go in peace. This is Greg Rashid with the Root and Root Show. And we'll see you tomorrow. And this is Donna Lee, Clark Terry, the great trumpet player. Take care.